This morning, we're going to move in to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. So you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. My intention is to talk a little bit shorter since we have the water baptism at the end. Uh, we got the water, so if you see any you know, people, uh, you know, their teeth chatter, I think we got up to like 72 degrees. Our regular heater thing didn't work, so we've been frantically heating it since yesterday. It was 59, and we got it clear up to 72, so it should be better than 59 at least. <laughs> It's going to be good. I'm excited about it. Um, I foreshadowed last week that chapter 4 of Ephesians, it talks quite a bit about unity in the church. And we're asking the question, what does it look like when God's people come together in unity? Now, Paul, if you've been here over the past couple months, he's just spent three chapters talking with the Ephesians about the wondrous mystery of salvation. How all of us, every single one of us, were made alive in Christ when we accept him. How the Gentiles at one time did not have the same path to God, but now they do. How God used to dwell the temple or the tabernacle. He had to go to a place to find his presence, but now we're the temple. And he dwells inside of us when we accept him. How mind-blowing that must have been for Gentiles who'd been told their whole life they couldn't know God the same way the Jews could. Now they were the temple or the tabernacle themselves. How all of us, Jews, Gentiles, everything in between, they constitute the people of God when we accept him. All of us together, not just in this room, but the church, constitute the people of God. Now Paul wants to talk to those people of God. He wants to talk to us. He wants to talk about the church. How many of you like coming to church? I mean, you're here, so it's, you know, easy, easy question answer. Many of you, like me, you might have grown up going to church each weekend, each Wednesday, if you had those kinds of services. Man, going to church every Sunday and Wednesday, it shaped my life when I was a kid. It still shapes my life. And it's shaping my kids' life. If you're new, we've got a daughter who's 25 and two boys who are nine and six. One of them's getting baptized today. The first thing our daughter Christina did with us when we adopted her uh, is she went to church. It's a long story, but at first she wasn't allowed to spend the night with us when we were her foster parents. We weren't her foster parents yet. And she'd call us. Every Saturday and Sunday, if we weren't at her house at 8.01 a.m., the phone would ring. Are you coming to get me? <laughs> Sunday mornings, we still lived in Caldwell. I was working at church in Cuna. Uh, I would go early, get ready to do worship, and Chandra would pick her up, and they'd come out and go to church. Both of our boys, uh, probably like a lot of your kids, I know a little baby Ava, right? Uh, Hazel, same thing. As soon as they, they had the first opportunity, they were in church. Our son, John, uh, it was a long, healthy fiasco having him be born, but we were in the hospital for three or four days or something, and we got home on a Friday night, and uh, I went to sing some songs at church on a Sunday night, and he'd been home from the hospital two days, and Shonda brought him. Luke was the same thing. As soon as we brought him home, the first Wednesday or Sunday, whatever it was, we got him there. I'll tell you what, once I learned to play bass, I played guitar this morning, but once I learned to play bass, that got me in the door of all kinds of churches that I had never been to before, Never thought about going to. I played bass uh, at worship services in all kinds of places, in a church, in a converted car dealership. Um, I've played bass. I uh, worship in tents. Uh, I've played at hotel convention centers. I've played at a couple things at arenas. One of the most unique ones, I played at a civic center for a cowboy church a whole bunch of times. And uh, I'll tell you this, you know, we like to say these days at church, you know, it doesn't matter what you wear, you just come as you are, and we try to be that kind of church. 
when I was a kid, man, you did not wear a hat in church, and now guys, like, speak with hats on sometimes. They preach with hats on. Uh, But I went to Cowboy Church, and I will tell you what, at Cowboy Church, they did care what I wore. Like, (laughs) you better look like a cowboy when you show up to play, right? So I didn't have a lot of cowboy stuff. I had this uh, sort of cowboy hat that my granddad gave me that we call the man from Snowy River hat. Looks like the man from Snowy River. And I wore that hat and like the most Western shirt I had, which was not much of a Western shirt, the least trendy jeans I had, you know. Uh, I think I borrowed some really uncomfortable cowboy boots from my friend, the drummer, that roped me into this mess in the first place. And I go, and man, as soon as those, these people came in for cowboy church, they were looking me up and down to see if I had dressed the part really the only church I've ever been in where they really cared what I wore. <laughs> but I've been big, small, everything in between. And no matter what, it's beautiful, man. Cowboy church was beautiful. I've heard of biker church. I've never been to that. I'm sure it's beautiful. Modern cowboy, traditional, somewhere in between. It's all good. Because God is calling us to do life and to do church together. Because churches, all those places... Uh, but more than that, it's all of us. It can be all of those different places and styles because we're all different. We've talked about how God has graced us all with different gifts. This morning, we're talking about being together in spirit. The section we're going to read is a little shorter, just six verses. And next week, we'll be talking about the action part. Today, we're together in spirit. And it's as important as it's ever been that whatever we do is God's church. Whatever we do is God's church, we have to do it together. The world is seeking to splinter everything. It's as important as it's ever been that we do it together. If we rise to the highest of heights, if it's incredible, we have to do it together. If we struggle mightily and life is frustrating, we have to do it together. We have to do it together. Let's read together this morning. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'm reading this morning out of the NIV. It says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We've got to do it together, friends, no matter what. Number one, when we are together in spirit, we honor our call. Look at that verse again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We've been alluding to the fact that the first three chapters of Ephesians, they were focused on this specific piece of doctrine, and that's that the Jews and the Gentiles, they were all one church. They were made alive in Christ. And now that Paul has kind of spent some time, the first three chapters, installing that doctrine in them, he turns to the more practical part. In your Bibles at the beginning of that verse, uh, or right in the middle, depending on your version, uh, it's, you see the word therefore or possibly there. This is a sign that Paul, now he's turning from the theological stuff to the nuts and bolts stuff of walking with God, of becoming his church together. And there's still plenty of theology through these next three chapters, but it's more interspersed with practical stuff. Great example is driving a car, right? How many here have taught someone to drive a car? 
few of you. Now, if you're teaching someone to drive a car, especially if they're a teenager and you don't completely trust them yet, uh, you spend a lot of time talking about the philosophy of driving the car, right? Now, this is why you have to be really careful. This machine could kill anyone, right? I mean, we give them all these big things. Uh, you know, you need to think about where you go, everywhere you go. You keep your eyes on the road. We give them all this philosophical stuff. But if we don't ever sit down with them and say, okay, this is where you put your hands on the wheel. This is how it feels when you turn it. The skinny pedal is the gas, and this, the rectangular one is the brake. If we never do that stuff, the practical stuff, then they never get out of the driveway. We can spend all the time we want having them read books about driving, explaining to them how important it is they do it safely, but until we let them get their hands on it, show them the way to do it, they're never going to leave the driveway. As Paul gets ready to talk about the call of the Ephesians, he wants them to know something first. That's what he says in this verse, and that is that we are held captive by what is most important to us. Remember at the beginning of chapter 3, I love this thing we talked about a few weeks ago, what Paul, who Paul had said he was a prisoner of. Right? It was a Roman jail that he was in, but Jesus was the reason he was there. He said, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. And when we decide to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, if we really do give our whole entire heart and life to him, then we are held captive by him. No matter what else is going on around us, we're held in place by our devotion to Jesus. Think about what it means when you are held captive by something. If you've been here long, you've heard me talk about sports. I feel like a good baseball game can hold me captive. I didn't hear many amens. We don't have a lot of baseball fans here, I guess. But uh, I remember when I was, uh, was dating my wife, and I think she had moved here. We did long distance for a while, but I'm a big Dodgers fan. The only thing about sports, you know, Dodgers-Giants is a big rivalry, right? And uh, I was talking to her about how great, uh, you know, baseball games are, the Dodgers-Giants rivalry. She sat down to watch a Dodgers-Giants game with me. I'll give you a clue. It's the last one she ever watched me with me because it was two to one, 17 innings. Now, I was captured by the baseball game, man, all 17 innings, all the pitches, all the strategy, man, that held my attention. She was bored pretty quickly. <laughs> you can ask her how quickly, but it was pretty quickly. I was held captive by the baseball game for four and a half hours, however long it lasted. And Paul here, he's urging us to be held captive, to be held prisoner for the Lord, to be taken captive by his cause. Not that you have to go to prison in order to be taken captive for his cause, but we let the cause of Christ be the deciding factor in what we do. If we're taken captive by his cause, he's, his, what he says to do is deciding what we do. So what does this, this phrase mean? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received? Well, the calling that we have received, it's simply to live a life that showcases the grace of God. Every day, day in, day out, minute by minute, a life that showcases the grace of God. In this book I'm studying about the book of Ephesians, this author, Tony Merida, he says something, uh, and I've heard it in other versions before, but he put it well. He said, there is no sharp divide between the sacred and the secular. There's no sharp divide between the sacred and the secular. Because we live in a world that's fallen, right? When you read in Genesis, we live in a world that's fallen. It is our job as Christians, people who know Jesus, 
to find that line between the sacred and the secular. To live intentionally, absolutely on the sacred side. But in view of the secular side, so we can honor the call. To be worthy of that calling that God has placed on our lives. And if we can find that line and we can be on the sacred side, but in view of those who don't know the Lord, we can live out that calling. And that calling is to let others know by virtue of the way we live day in and day out about the wonderful and saving grace of Jesus. Think, friends, about how powerful it is, how powerful it might be. Maybe you've done it. If in your workplace where everyone is striving to get ahead, man, especially now, man, if you live in Boise and, uh, you know, you're trying to buy a house or something like that, you got to compete for the highest wages. That's a conversation for another time. But uh, in your workplace where everyone is striving to get ahead, somehow your coworkers can see that it's not getting ahead that defines you. That somehow getting the next promotion is not the most important thing to you. It's in that moment we're on the right side of the sacred and the secular that we're living a life that honors our calling. Not that we can personally save anyone or even save ourselves. We know from the beginning of Ephesians we can't. But the call of Jesus on this earth was to bring from heaven God's saving grace. That's what Jesus did. He brought it from heaven to us. And be assured that if we are taken captive by his cause, by the cause of Jesus, that our calling begins to mirror his calling. If we're taken captive by Jesus, our calling looks just like his. And by the grace of God, our lives, they start to look a little different than the rest of the world. And when we do this at church, together in spirit, a whole bunch of people throughout this community that call Engage Boise their church, then we honor God's call on our lives. We live a life worthy of the calling, and we do it together. Number two is this. When we are together in spirit, we are marked by God. And when we're together as his church, we really are. There's something that looks different about us. We're marked. Someone walks up and they they see us if we're marked as his. We look different. Let's look again at verses two and three really quickly. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Think for a moment about how we always find the things we are looking for. I'm sure all of you have certain things. If you go to the store or the gas station, like I go to probably way too many times, the gas station. Uh, if you have certain things you like to drink, how do you find it? It's marked, right? It looks different than all the other ones. Now, for me, I like to drink Coke Zero these days. So, like, I don't know, four or five years ago, I had to swear off the regular Coke because it was making me fat, fatter than I already was. And uh, when I go to the store, I'm hunting for the Coke Zero, Right? I walk down the line, and I see the black and red. It looks kind of similar to the regular stuff, so i got to be careful. If I'm not real careful, I'll accidentally get the uh, cherry or vanilla kind, which is not good. I just like the regular kind. As long as I get it cold, it's pretty good. But when I go in there and I hunt for the soda that I'm looking for, it's marked a certain way. When you hunt for what you're looking for, it's marked a certain way. That's how you know what it is. It says Coke Zero Sugar on it. Likewise, there are certain things that mark us when it comes to how we live our lives. There are certain things that mark us as the people of God. Certain things that mark us as the church, if we're really being the church the way that God intended it. 
in the world, whether they know it or not, they are looking for something that they currently don't have. People don't have Christ. They are hunting every day for something they don't have. They're looking for something better than what they have currently. We know here today that what they're looking for is the risen Savior, the one who's no longer in that grave, the way maker. And what Paul is saying here is that there are certain things that mark us individually in the church and as the church. And those certain things mark us as belonging to God. All of them are in these verses, the ones Paul's talking about, so we're going to look at them uh, this morning. All of them, by the way, characteristics that Jesus exemplified while on earth. And I'll show you where. We're just going to go through these in these few moments, look at the example that Jesus gave us. Verse 4, it said, to be completely humble. When Paul wrote this, that the Ephesians should live with humility, it would have been a huge shock because at this time, being called humble was not a good thing. It suggested being a servant of someone else. Being a servant was definitely bad. We've talked before about how the lowest job you could have in the house was a servant who washed feet when people came in. Being called a servant, being called humble was not a good thing in these times. But Jesus came and he showed us how to live on the side of the sacred instead of the secular. And here's what Paul said about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, saying this about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus descended, and though he was God's son, he sacrificed his life for us, sacrificed his life for me. That is the type of humility that marks us as Christians. Verse 4 says next, to be gentle. When I think of being gentle, I think of how I handled both my sons when they were very first born. You know, I, I didn't have a ton of experience handling babies, but especially, right, when they first handed me John, I was just, you know, I didn't know what to do except just get my arms around him and hold him as tight as I could, protect him from everything. Hand him super carefully back to the next person that came along. But I think of how I handled my sons when they were born. As gently as I could possibly manage. And when we are gentle in spirit as the people of God, it enables us to protect and comfort someone who otherwise is defenseless. And we're gentle in spirit, we can comfort and protect others. Jesus told us, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, being gentle does not mean being timid. I'm not saying you be a pushover. You can lead, but you can do it with a gentle and a humble spirit. Moses, we're not going to take the time to go there today, but Moses in Numbers 12, 3, he is described as the meekest man on earth. But he stood up to the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. Had a part of destroying all of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And I love that verse we read, Matthew 11, because being gentle is powerful because just about everyone is looking uh, for what Jesus talks about in Matthew. They're looking for rest for their soul. Look what the end of that verse says. 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what the world is looking for, for rest for their souls. Exemplifying, God's calling us to exemplify the gentleness of Jesus. And that gentleness is what marks us as his. Next, it says here, uh, verse 4 and 5, to be patient. It's a very, there's this very simple that we often hear about patience, right? You probably know where I'm going. Patience is a virtue. And that's a simple three-word sentence, but, man, that's an everyday journey to actually do, right? <laughs> you know, when you're going through uh, something that's frustrating, you don't want to hear someone say to you, patience is a virtue. Your patience is a virtue then right outside, right? Jesus gives us the ultimate example of this, though. Paul writes about it in his letter to Timothy later on. And Paul, speaking of his own relationship with Christ, says this. Remember who Paul was when he was more commonly known as Saul. He was persecuting, trying to kill Christians. The Bible says that he was breathing out murderous threats toward Christians. And he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus appears to him in a blinding flash of light, blinds him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We don't know how many people Paul persecuted, but he says this about his relationship with Jesus. First Timothy 1.16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul's saying, man, Jesus expressed immense patience towards me. Aren't you glad for his immense patience in your life? Man, I am glad for his immense patience in my life. And when we exhibit that patience as best as we can, it marks us as one of his followers. When we exhibit that patience that Jesus has as best we can, it marks us as one of his followers. That takes us into this next characteristic, something that I'm also very grateful for, uh, bearing with one another in love. Think about that phrase for a moment that Paul so expertly uses. When we say to someone, bear with me. When you say to someone, hey, hey, bear with me, what does that mean? It means, well, I'm going to get to a part I think you might like, but first you're going to have to deal with a part you might not like so much. Bear with me while I tell you the bad news before I tell you the good news. Bear with me while I tell you about how the car is wrecked but nobody got hurt, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing. In Christ, in his infinite kindness, he's willing to bear with us as we walk through our sin and our shame and willingly accept us. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Bearing with one another, as Christ has done with us, it marks us as his. When we bear with others, it marks us as belonging to Jesus. Now, verse 3 is so powerful and simple when it comes to the church. But historically, I think we could say it's been pretty difficult to live out. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Notice the word uh, it uses there about unity. We're not creating the unity. It doesn't say make every effort to create unity, but we keep it. 
God created, uh, created unity when he made us into his church. But it's our call to keep that unity. That's why the reason I have my phone up here, I wanted to read you this quote from uh, Pastor Isaac. We are standing with them in unity as, as they go through this thing. This is an article on ktv.com. And uh, they interviewed him, and, and uh, Pastor Isaac said this. Our love is for God, not a building, T.S. said. Even though that building was used for the glory of God, we will continue to serve in our community. What we can do when we pray for him is stand with him in unity. It's our call to keep that unity. And can I suggest to you this morning that unity is something we go out and we do. It's not something that happens to us. It doesn't just magically happen. God has created it, but we got to walk into it. It takes effort and it takes work to remain unified. If you're married, you know, you see your spouse every single day. It still takes effort to remain unified. You know what's amazing? How God has made us all unique and different. But it also means that it takes a ton of effort to understand each other. Here at the end of the verse, it tells us exactly what we need to do it, though. It says, through the bond of peace. Romans 12 tells us that as far as we are concerned, we're to live at peace with everyone. And I was thinking about it, and pursuing peace with everyone is, uh, peace is kind of like the bungee cord that keeps everyone together. You've all used bungee cords before, right? I think that's a pretty apt metaphor. Now, a bungee cord uh, if you get a good one, man, you can wrap that thing and wrap it and wrap it and wrap it. And if you get it tight enough, it can be just like barely holding on to something and still hold it in, right? 99% of it can be holding out, but if you got hanging out, but if you got the bungee cord tight enough, it's going to hold the things together. And peace is kind of like the bungee cord that keeps us all together. Because you might be thinking the same thing that we all do sometimes and the thing that I've thought, of course, when it comes to the church yeah, sure, God, peace sounds really good, but have you seen my neighbor? <laughs> I'm sure those cowboy church people were thinking, yeah, peace sounds good, but did you see that guy in his cowboy boots and his jeans? His man from Snowy River hat? Peace sounds great, but have you seen my neighbor? <laughs> in order to be marked by these characteristics, we have to be marked by unity, and to get unity, we have to pursue peace. And we need to renounce the opposite of all these things we just talked about. We need to renounce pride and take up humility. We need to renounce the brutal, get-ahead ways of the world and take up gentleness. We need to renounce continually looking for faults in our brothers and sisters and take up patience. Bearing one another's burdens, as the King James says. In short, we love each other enough to make allowance for each other's faults. And when we do those things, we are marked by unity. As engaged boys, when we make allowance for each other's faults, we're marked by unity. And that unity, friends, it's accomplished day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And it's accomplished with peace, pursuing peace at all costs. And when these characteristics identify us, we're together in spirit. Number three, when we're together in spirit, there's only one. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all. He was over all, 
and through all and in all. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that we're all the same. He's saying that even in our differences, we're beautifully united behind one cause. And that's the cause of Christ. Let's look at these seven one statements quickly as we prepare to move towards water baptism here in a few minutes. It says uh, in verse uh, five and six there, there, there is one body. There aren't many churches. You've heard me, I think, say, call it the big C church. There aren't many churches. There's one big C church. Just as the Jews and Gentiles all became part of the same church when Jesus came, there are many different parts of the same church now. Every church who preaches that belief in Jesus is the only way to heaven, that's part of the body of Christ. They might look different from us. Like I said, the cowboy church looked different from me. But we're all the body of Christ. There is one body. That's what Ephesians says. There is one spirit. We're not going to take the time to go there now, but it's really cool if you go look. Uh, I, I went and looked at it this week in the Bible that I, I read these days, the New Living Translation. I've been through Acts recently. The same Holy Spirit came to the Jews at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 as came to the Gentiles in Acts 10. If you go read those two accounts, you're going to be struck by how similar the language is. And also how shocked some of the Jewish people were that it was happening for the Gentiles. The same Holy Spirit came to the Jews as did to the Gentiles in Acts. There is one hope. There is one hope. And that's why we're here this morning. His name is Jesus. Right? When we're together in spirit, we understand completely that Jesus is our only hope. Not only for us in this room, but for everyone in the world. Not only for us in this room, but for everyone in the world. The band, you guys can get ready. We're going to get ready to move towards water baptism here in a minute. There's one hope. There is one Lord. These days, especially in the United States, you are free to say anything you want to anyone you want about what's Lord of your life. Right? You go open up Whatever social media you get on, you go look at the news, you'll hear all kinds of people saying so-and-so thing is Lord of their life. We're free to say whatever we want to. That was not the case for the early Christians when when this was first said. Because when the Jewish believers said that Jesus is Lord, what they were saying also was Caesar was not their Lord. They were saying, I believe in Jesus and I serve him with my life instead of Caesar. And today when we say that there is one Lord. We're saying there's only one way to heaven. And in a world where many people will want to tell you that you can live however you like and everything's going to be fine, it marks us as different in the church when we say there is one Lord. There's not many ways to heaven. There is one. Amen? Amen. There's one faith. There's one set of truth that we believe. One set of truth. That truth is that God created us. That he's sovereign and he's in charge of everything. He sent his son Jesus. And his son Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. There's one baptism. That's what we're going to celebrate today. This one baptism symbolizes that just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, our hearts are resurrected to life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
We're celebrating that the old is going away and the new is coming. And every single person, it was so important for him to write this, every single person, young, old, male, female, any race can partake in the grace of Christ. If you're here this morning, doesn't matter where you've been, where you're going, you can partake in the grace of Christ. Finally, this morning, we see there is one God over all of it. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who knows us. Spoiler alert, friends, he's the one who knows how it's all going to end. He's the only one who knows the day or the hour. And he's the one calling to us this morning. When we're together in spirit, we all acknowledge there is only one true God. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes uh, for a moment, moment before we prepare to do our water baptisms? Um, we don't want to talk about the grace of Jesus without giving you a chance to accept it. We're going to baptize in water in a moment. And um, I told the candidates earlier, and we always say there's nothing magic about being baptized in water, uh, but we're making an outward expression of what God has done inside of us. So if you're here this morning and uh, you hear me talk about this grace and this Jesus and this God, and maybe you knew him once, but you don't anymore, or maybe you've never accepted Christ into your life, John chapter 1 says that when we accept him, he comes into our hearts. And we symbolize that by saying a prayer often. So if you're here this morning, your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, just me looking around. Um, if you're here this morning, you need to accept Christ, rededicate your life. We don't want to go any farther without giving you a chance to do that. So if you need to, I won't single you out, embarrass you, but I'd love to pray with you if that's the case for you. If you're here this morning, you need to accept the Lord, accept Jesus into your heart. When I count to three, would you raise your hand so we can pray? One. Two, three. Awesome, thank you. See your hands. Let me pray over you today. Lord Jesus, thank you for these people that uh, love you, have extended their hearts towards you. Uh, we commend our hearts to you today, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us as Engage Boise to know you better and to know you more. But I pray that you would help us minute by minute, day by day, month by month, uh, to be more together more unified than we've ever been. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a church that despite the shifting sands of the world, that we would be together in unity. We would be a church that supports peace. No, we're not all the same. But Jesus, we go after your peace this morning. I pray even in this moment as we prepare to sing, prepare to baptize, Lord, that you would unify us, bind us together with your strength, your mercy today. Lord, for anyone here who's uh, stretched their heart towards you for the first time, I pray that you would enter their hearts, uh, you would overcome them in a radical way today. Lord Jesus, I pray these things in your name.